is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being just a man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that is which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of God. Thanks again, Haley. Uh, that's the second time Haley's read the passage. The deal was, uh, Haley, if you will read twice, we'll spare you the names in verses 2 through 15. So everybody wins. Thanks, Haley. Merry Christmas, everybody. I don't know if you had kids in your house this morning. I'm looking for the ones who are looking slightly ropey. Uh, we had seven, so you can forgive me for looking slightly ropey. There's a beautiful chaos this morning. Uh, and it's been so wonderful to have the kids with us here. Uh, you can just feel that buzz, that energy. I don't know how much of it is sugar-induced and how much of it is holy, but, but who knows. Uh, the, parents, the parents have been going since 4.15, and so they're only too glad to see the back of those guys for half an hour while they catch some sleep. Guys, I'll wake you up at the end. If you, if you knew absolutely nothing about Christmas... You would still know just from the nativity scene at Spa that it's about the birth of a baby. That much you would know. And of course, one thing you discover when babies are born is that you have to name them. Some people have the name of their children all planned out. They've had those names planned out since they were children. For others of us, it's a rude shock. This kid is coming and it needs a name. Of course, different cultures deal with this crisis differently, don't they? For example, in ancient Hebrew culture, the names actually meant something. You didn't just like the sound of a certain name. You didn't pull it from Heat magazine or your favorite footballer. The names meant something. So there on your seat, uh, you'll have one of these leaflets. If you can hold on to that, it'll be a great help to me. Have a look there in verse 2. We read this. Abraham was the father of Isaac. And Isaac was the father of Jacob. Now, all three of those names from ancient Hebrew culture mean something. They mean something. Abraham means the father of nations because that is what he would become. Isaac means laughter because his parents laughed in disbelief when God promised them a son. And then they laughed again in joy when the baby was born. Jacob means he cheats 
because that's how he used to roll until he encountered God. The names meant something. The names even described character. Now, I have no idea how this works. Is the child given the name and then lives up to the name, or do the parents have some sort of prophetic insight? I don't know how it works. I do know that it does work. It still works in contemporary African culture. We see this all the time. When I was at uh, college, the top student at college was a man by the name of Thinkmore. (laughs) Thinkmore was his name, and clearly he did, more than any other student. I know another man who is a gardener by trade. He works with plants. His name is Green. I know a lady by the name of Happiness. Happiness is happiness. If the quality happiness took on flesh and blood, it would be this lady. There is no one happier than happiness. In some cultures, names have meaning. In others, like my own, they are just randomly assigned. My name is Royden. My parents found that name in an obituary at the back of the newspapers. It wasn't a great start. (laughs) The name describes someone who farms rye grass on a hill. Midrand is a hill. I mow the lawn occasionally. That's about as close as you get to meaning. And the name just isn't practical. People have no idea what to do with it. Americans think that it's two names. How you doing, Roy Don? Everyone else has no clue what to do with this name. I've been called Gordon. That would have been an upgrade. Gords. I've been called Gordon. I've been called Rory. I've been called Warren. I've even been called Wooden. <laughs> Granted, that was by a drunk Englishman in Bangkok, so I really shouldn't have been expecting much. The point is this. When you have a baby, you have to name it. However you go about that, every parent faces this challenge. Joseph and Mary faced this exact challenge. They had to name their baby. In a culture where names meant something, they would have taken that responsibility very seriously. And it wasn't just theirs. It belonged to the wider community. The wider community would have had a role to play. In that culture, naming this baby would have been a big deal anyway. But because of who this baby was, we have a whole chapter of the Bible devoted to his name. Now, if if you'd been paying really close attention, you would have seen that, in fact, he's given three different names in our chapter. So have a look at this leaflet on your seat. Just scan there to verse 16. In verse 16, he is called the Christ. In verse 21, he is called Jesus. In verse 23, he is called Emmanuel. So, verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Christ isn't his surname. Christ means anointed king. This baby is the anointed king. Look at how the title of the book, in verse 1, look at how the title of the book puts it. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then it goes on to give a kind of a family tree, an organogram, if you like. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and so on, all the way down to Jesus. As with any family tree, some names are more prominent than others. So look there in verse 17, you see that Matthew, who wrote this account for us, 
is keen that his readers know that Jesus is in the line of Abraham and in the line of David. Why? Because that's the royal line. Because God promised Abraham and then David that he would bless the world through a king who would be born in their line. And the Jews had a name for that much-anticipated king. They called him Messiah. And the translation, the Greek translation of that word Christos comes to us in English as Christ. This baby is given the name Christ. He is the king. The second naming comes in verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. You might ask, well, what sins? I mean, surely from Abraham onwards, these were God's holy chosen people. They were holy. They were chosen. In what sense do they need saving from their sins? We could easily miss it. But Matthew makes it very clear that these people are sinful and they need saving. If you were to draw your own family tree, you might be tempted to do a little bit of pruning, right? So you... You snip off that uncle who spent some time in prison and that granny with her gambling addiction, snip, snip. You're doing all sorts of pruning. Matthew does the opposite. He goes out of his way to expose the skeletons in the family closet. Let me give you some examples. Besides Mary, the mother of Jesus, he includes four women. All four of them were not Jewish. And that would have been a scandal in itself because that would have tainted the family bloodline. But there's more. Three out of those four women were women of ill repute. Tamar, in verse 3, was an adulteress. Rahab, from verse 5, was a prostitute. And it's not as though the men fare any better. By referring to the wife of Uriah in verse 6, Matthew is putting King David's adultery and his murder in neon lights in this family tree. He could have just said Bathsheba. But he writes, wife of Uriah. In other words, wife of another man. A man that David would murder. A man David killed so that he could take his wife. Or at least cover up for the fact that he had already taken her. King David, the great hero of this family tree, has murder murderer, and cheat in brackets next to his name. King Manasseh, mentioned in verse 10, was one of the most evil kings in Jewish history. He actually sacrificed his own son to a false god, to a, to a pagan god. And yet, there he is in verse 10, plain as the nose on your face. Verse 10 of the family tree, there he is, bold, underlined, Manasseh. Now, Matthew's been very selective in giving us this family tree. Why would he not just sweep Manasseh under the carpet like we would? No, snip, snip. Why wouldn't he do that? Because he is determined to show just how desperately this people needs saving from their sins. And it's not just this people, the Jews. He also includes non-Jews like Rahab and Ruth. To show that all people are sinners in need of saving. Why do sinners need saving? 
Well, we would need to go to the rest of the Bible for that. And the rest of the Bible would teach us that to sin is to turn away from God. To walk away. To walk out of any possible relationship. To say that I prefer to live my life on my own, on my own terms. Thank you very much. Here's the problem. To turn away from God is life-threatening. Because God is the source of life. To turn away from God is to choose death. And it's obvious that those who choose death need saving. Both from themselves, they're a liability to themselves, and from death itself. They need saving. This baby is given the name Jesus because he has come to do just that. He has come to save people from their sin. A third naming comes to us in verse 23, but let's just pick it up in verse 20. I'll read it for us. But as he, that's Joseph, the father of Jesus, considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The baby is called Emmanuel, God with us. Not God in the sense of having God's support, having God's backing. Not God with us in the sense of God on our side. God with us in person. God as man. God with us in that way is all the more extraordinary because he came to us as sinners. Right? The us in God with us is a race of God-haters who deliberately distance themselves from God. And yet, God comes so close that he comes as one of us. To choose life on our behalf by choosing life with his Father. To take the death that we have chosen on himself. He takes our death and gives us his life. That's the cross. That's Easter, the death and resurrection of Jesus. At Christmas, we remember that he is God with us. But we don't forget that he is God with us in that way. So there are three names, and they are full of meaning, aren't they? Christ, Jesus, Emmanuel. You say to me, yeah, look, I know, that's, um, I've always liked the name Emmanuel. And there's a footballer called Jesus. I'm a big fan. Those are great names. There's a little more to these names than whether we like them or not. Each one of these names lays a claim on each one of us here this morning. Here are the claims. The Christ came to rule you. Jesus came to save you. God came to be with you.
Firstly, the Christ came to rule you. It's very clear that in the Jewish understanding of their long-awaited king, in that understanding, he would rule the whole world. And so if this baby was called the Christ, that's what those who named him had in mind, a king who would rule the whole world. If he came to rule the world, then he came to rule you. As someone has said, there isn't a square inch of the universe over which Christ does not proclaim mine. Let me say it the other way around. Christ proclaims mine over every square inch of the universe. And you happen to be in the universe. He came to rule you. I was listening to someone the other day just describing uh, the evolution of his understanding of God. And he was saying, you know, I had no problem with God as king of the universe. I had a major problem with God as king of my life. And that's the obvious objection, isn't it? Jesus is king. Well, that's wonderful. But I'm not interested. I'm quite happy running my own life. Let me ask you a personal question. How's that going for you? And how's it going for the people around you? If I was to ask your spouse or your children or your closest relative, your closest friend, are you glad that he thinks he's in charge or that she thinks she's in charge? What would they say? They know you best. What would they say? Most of us, if we are honest... Recognize that life under my rule is not going all that well. Now, either I can recognize that I'm making a mess of it, or even if I refuse to see that, I still have a problem. Because my rule of my life keeps bumping into other people who want to rule their lives. I'm always fighting with those who get in the way of my rule. Those who have the cheek to want to make the universe conform to their rule. You see, things are not okay. And if we are honest, we have to admit that we are part of the problem. But maybe you're not ready or willing to admit that. Maybe, maybe you think you're just fine. You are quite happy getting the universe to orbit, orbit around you. Maybe that's where you're at. That attitude... The denial of God's rightful rule in your life is the very reason you need Christ in the first place. You may be okay with being in charge of your life, but God isn't. Now, if you have children, you will know exactly what I'm talking about. Think about your children. By the logic of the way we treat God, you should be happy for your children to ignore you, to do whatever they want to run their lives their own way. Are you? Are you happy with that? I doubt it. In fact, I'm pretty sure you're not, and rightly so. For their own safety, for their own flourishing, for their own success in life, they need your parental authority. They need those boundaries. Even with all of your imperfections, your authority in their lives is a good thing. Of course, I'm not talking about abuse of that authority as an excuse to bully them. 
Putting that aside, your parental authority is a good thing in the life of your child. Now, if your authority, you with all your imperfections and limits and flaws, if your authority is a good thing in the life of your child, how much more of a good thing is the authority of the perfect king in our lives? The king who has limitless power but never abuses it. The king who only ever uses his power to love and to serve and to save. The king who would die for his people. And yet instinctively, naturally, we don't want that authority. We reject it. Just like your kid doesn't want yours. The two-year-old temper tantrum is the classic illustration. Some of you don't need to imagine. Some of you, that was your lived experience this morning. You can raise your hand. Bless them, they're asleep. You didn't teach your kid to do that. You didn't need to. It was in them. Because it's in us. It's in us as human beings. It's how we relate to God's rule. For the two-year-old, that ends in tears. For us, it ends in death. It's why we need saving. The Christ who came to rule you is the Jesus who came to save you. The obvious objection, and it's typical of us in the middle or upper middle classes, the obvious objection is this. What do I need saving from? I've got the job. I've got the car, the house. I've got the holiday coming up. I've got the idyllic family. I've got the turkey in the oven. And now that you mention it, Pastor, the clock's ticking. <laughs> what exactly do I need this Jesus for? Well, I think COVID has helped us in this area. I think COVID has helped us to see how fragile that little suburban bubble is. Our security, our independence is a mirage. It's an illusion. And all of a sudden, the car, the job, the house, they don't mean comfort. They just mean debt. They mean endless nasty arguments with your spouse. They mean kids who are feeling the stress and beginning to act out. The idyllic family is coming apart at the seams, and you can't bear the thought of a holiday with one another. Merry Christmas. But maybe that's not you. Maybe you sailed through COVID like you sailed through everything in life with perfect poise. Maybe. But there's still something that no amount of suburban success and landing on your feet will save you from. Death. Yesterday was Christmas Eve. I actually conducted a funeral yesterday. It was such a vivid reminder for me that death is coming, and it's coming to all of us, and you can't curate it. You can't pencil it into your diary. Ambitions, dreams, fulfillment, uh, and then later on, very much later on, death. It doesn't work like that. It's coming, and it comes when it comes. Some of you go on holiday to the Western Cape. Maybe you've been on holiday to the Western Cape. You might have been to a beach called Fishhook. On that beach, uh, running along the one side of it, there's a walkway 
And on that walkway, there's a whole series of these plastic benches. And on each plastic bench, there's a copper plaque dedicating that bench to someone who has passed on. This bench is dedicated to Joe Bloggs. Joe used to love sitting here and watching the waves roll in. If your life is going to end up as nothing but a rusty plaque on a plastic bench in Fishhook, if that's all it's going to amount to, then it's absurd. It is absurd. All the existentialist philosophers are right. Death makes life into an absurd joke. Let me paraphrase one of them. Life without God is death without hope and the endless pursuit of desires that cannot be fulfilled. Life is nothing but a dark comedy that takes too long to end. That's not a pastor speaking. You'd expect a pastor to say life without God is meaningless. Isn't that what they paid for? That's not a pastor. That's the furthest thing from a pastor. That's a French atheist secular philosopher. And what he's saying is not exactly the Christmas spirit, is it? But at least he's being honest. Life without God is death without hope and the endless pursuit of desires that can never be fulfilled. It's nothing but a dark comedy that takes too long to end. Jesus came as God in the flesh precisely to face up to that reality, to stare that enemy in the eye, to give us hope where there is no hope. Because in the face of hopeless death, he offers eternal life. He restores our relationship with God and gives our lives purpose. We can live the life we were made to live. A life devoted to God and to others. Infinitely more, so much more than a sequence of weekends and trips away and experiences that end up as a plaque rusting on a plastic bench. So much more, infinitely more than a lifetime of collecting stuff that just ends in auction or in a family feud. The Christ who came to rule you is the Jesus who came to save you, is the God who came to be with you. And the obvious objection is why would he do that? Why would God come to us? I mean, aren't we supposed to get to God? Isn't that how it works? Isn't heaven reserved for the worthy? Don't we have to prove ourselves? Isn't it the good people that get to God? Well, Matthew's already showed us that there are no good people. That there are no good people in this room. Nobody wants God. We may want him on our terms as a kind of a divine domestic worker, but we don't want him as king. And so this baby came to rule over rebels who would kill him. And he came to save sinners who would scoff at his salvation. He came, he came to be with people who do not want to be with him. He came to be with us. He came to be with you. It's called love. Are there any objections? 
You may not think you are worthy, and you'd be right. His love is all about who he is, not about who we are. And it's a gift. It's a gift. It's his Christmas gift to you. And I hope you will receive it. Let's pray. Father, how can we ever begin to thank you for this baby? Thank you for Christ our King, Jesus our Savior, and Emmanuel, God with us. Father, I pray for the person here this morning who has never received the gift you are offering in your Son. Please, by your Spirit, open their hearts now so that Christmas will never be the same. In the name of Jesus Christ.